Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hi, I'm Pete McCall. Welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. So a lot of times I, on the podcast, I share what kind of got me interested in fitness. I was a kid of the 80s. I grew up, you know, big fan of all the movies, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. But really, one, one of the biggest influences in my life was my grandfather. You know, my, actually my paternal, my father's father. And every time my grandfather would come stay with us, I was always surprised. You know, he would, <laughs> I'd come down in the morning and my grandfather would be doing sit-ups and uh, push-ups in, uh, you know, in the guest room. And then every day he would go out for a walk in the morning and a walk in the afternoon. You know, and as a kid growing up, you know, you kind of, the only reason why I would walk is because I couldn't drive and we're going somewhere. <laughs> so I never really understood you know, why, why my grandfather would go out walking. So one day I asked him you know, if I could go for a walk with him. And we went for a walk and, you know, as I was talking, I just asked him, you know, why, you know, grandpa, why, why do you do these walks? And he's like, because I enjoy it. He's like walking as I get outside, I'm in the fresh air. It helps me to clear my mind and it's good for the body. And, you know, that kind of stuck with me. I, maybe I was like nine or 10 years old when we did that walk. And it just, it kind of stuck with me that my grandfather got out there and walked because he enjoyed it. You know, how many of you enjoy exercise? How many of you enjoy the workouts that you do? Do you, do you work out because you like to? Do you work out because you love to? Or are you working out because you feel that you have to, right? A lot of times, you know, we know, oh, I need to work out. Or oh, I hear from, you know, I hear from people who don't work in the industry, you know, friends that are, I'll call them civilians or, you know, non-fitness professionals, like, oh, I have to go work out today or oh, I have to hit the gym. And if you hear that, when I hear that have to, it makes me question, what's your relationship with that? Do you, do you enjoy exercise or is it something that you feel you have to do? And that's one of the first questions I always ask clients. You know, when I start working with a client, I always ask him or her, you know, is, is this something you like to do? Do you like exercise and just want to learn how to do it smarter, safer? Or do you feel like you have to be here and you have to be doing something and you just want to do it in a way that, that provides some benefits? And that gets us to this episode's guest. It's Dr. Kelly McGonigal. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a little while, I did have Kelly on as a guest a few months ago. And I interviewed, this is similar interviews, you know, but back then, you know, that was before her book came out. Her book is The Joy of Movement. And we, we, I interviewed her and she had to, I had to embargo the information on the book before it was published. So this is the full and complete interview with Dr. Kelly McGonigal, where we talk about her research. Kelly is a, is a, a researcher and professor at Stanford. She's, a, she does clinical psychology and research psychology. So she studies how the brain and how the body, she studies more of how the brain, exercise physiologists study how the body's affected by exercise, 
But one of the things that Dr. McGonigal does is study how does exercise affect the brain. Not only is she a researcher, but Dr. McGonigal is also a uh, group fitness instructor. So she's coming at it from two points of view. And that was what made, when I, when I got the Joy of Movement, when it was sent to me by, by her publisher, I really, I dove right into it. And man, she hit the nail on the head. You know, if you're one of these people that kind of struggles, you kind of a yo-yo exercise, or you start an exercise, you stop, you start, you stop. Don't go with the latest fad. Don't do something because you feel you have to. Don't go take a class or do a program or go to a certain studio because it's all the rage, because it's the latest thing and all the celebrities are doing it. Find out, find the exercise, find the movement that you love. Do you like to dance? Go dancing. Do you like to run? Go running, but be smart about it. Don't just do only running. Do some different conditioning so you don't get repetitive stress injuries. If you like cycling, enjoy cycling, but understand how to do it injury-free. That's what's so fascinating about this conversation is Kelly and I get into the details of why we exercise. It's not only for the physical benefits. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of physical benefits, but it's emotional. It's mental. It stimulates the brain as well as the body. On this episode of All About Fitness, this really is a fascinating deep dive into the psychology of exercise and the joy of movement with Dr. Kelly McGonigal. I'm Pete McCall, the All About Fitness Podcast. And today, this is such a pleasure because to be honest, and I'm sure I'm going to talk about this on the intro, I was going to reach out to you, but I was so stoked to get your, your email that it really just, it, it, it made me smile. We're speaking today with Kelly McGonigal. Kelly, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I am all right. And I, I wanted to ask a question earlier, but I stopped myself. For listeners, Kelly is well known for a, a TED video about stress. And I'm going to have a link to that below. But how long have you been a group fitness instructor? Because I found that fascinating. I didn't realize that you yourself taught group fitness. Yes, I've been teaching group fitness for almost 20 years. And I, no matter what I do in the field of psychology, I will always believe that my greatest contribution to humanity is the classes that I lead. Well, isn't that interesting? So if you allow me just a second here, because how long you're, you're a, what kind of, you're a psychologist, right? But you're, what kind of psychologist are you? Well, so I'm trained as a research psychologist. So I like to say I know how to analyze data, not people. Um, And I got my my start studying how emotions affect the body. So for example, if you're angry, what does it do to your blood pressure? And if you think differently about what you're angry about versus try to hide your anger from the person you're angry at, how does that affect your body, your blood pressure, your immune function? Um, I'm really interested in the relationship between the mind and the body. And then as I um, got further in my research career, I also started to study compassion and empathy and social connection and how it is that we form communities of support and how it is we can develop our empathy muscle to connect with with people more broadly. And I do feel like group uh, fitness, by the way, helps with all of that. Obviously, the mind-body connection, but also our ability to connect with others. Well, as I was reading reading Joy of Movement, uh, your new book here, that's exactly what, what shouted out to me. It was like, your research is and what we do in group fitness is a perfect marriage of, of everything. That, would, to me, was what I found so fascinating. So uh, let me, let's take a step back here real quick. What caused you to go down the avenue of becoming a research psychologist? Psychologist as opposed to a practicing, practicing psychologist? I, I really like to understand the way the world works and the way that humans experience life. I guess, you know, sort of probably the same thing that might draw someone to literature or the arts or sociology. Um, I just love understanding what it's like 
to be a human. And I'm so curious about what it's like to be a different human being with a different life experience. And uh, I just found that that research psychology allowed me to ask interesting questions like, you know, what is it like to um, to be going through something stressful and to try different ways of of dealing with that stress? Or what is it like when you're in a relationship and there's conflict and there are different ways of, of dealing with that conflict? I found that the research just allowed me to ask questions and and meet my curiosity. But you know, the reason that I didn't stay a full-time research psychologist is at the end of the day, um, I could not suppress my desire to help people. And there is that tension when you're a scientist to either produce ideas or go out in the world and try to, um, to change people's lives. And um, that tension, I guess, was always there. And uh, I do view writing and teaching and group fitness as, as sort of the application. I mean, it's kind of therapy, right? Well, it is. And this is where I'm going with this. What, what was your education? What education did you have have to go through to be able to be – obviously, you had your undergrad. But what kind of graduate school did you have to go through to, to get to where you are now to dive, dive this deep into the research? Well, I did my PhD at Stanford. Um, my primary PhD is in psychology, and I did a concentration in humanistic medicine, which is basically understanding how human factors, like your connection with your doctor or the social support that you get from your family, um, how that impacts your ability to heal. And um, and I continued to teach at Stanford and do research at Stanford um, while also beginning to focus on communicating the science to the world more broadly. All right. I was going to ask this question later, but I'm just going to do it now because we have a lot of listeners that, that I think are our parents as well. Your twin sister does something pretty remarkable as well. Listeners might, might not be aware of your sister's, um, what your sister does, but what, what is your sister, what does your twin do? What does Jane do? Uh, yeah, so Jane McGonigal is a futurist and a game designer. So a futurist is someone who basically helps other people imagine what the future might be like. So one of her most recent projects that I'm so proud of, um, she's helping technology companies imagine how their products could be used both for good and for harmful purposes to try to create more ethical technology in the future. But she's also a game designer. So she has created some amazing games like World Without Oil um, that that help people live in a in sort of an alternate reality that forces them to think about really important issues. So World Without Oil was this simulation where in the real world you had to live as if we were facing an oil crisis that helped people think about climate change and the environment and the impact of their everyday behaviors. Um, so she's, she, I like to say she's the fun twin. Um, because she's a game designer, but she's doing pretty important work. Well, both of you guys, and the reason why I ask this, and this is selfish too, and I'll get there in a second, but both of you, uh, the two of you are doing such impressive work. I'm, I'm the daughter, or I'm not the daughter, I'm the father <laughs> of two daughters. So the reason why I ask this question, you know, the reason why I ask this question, Kelly, is what was home life like growing up? Like, how did you and your sister turn out to be these leaders in your fields in terms of academia? And as a parent, you know, what, what were you engaged with growing up that kind of led you to this, this career of discovery for each of you? Both of my parents were teachers, so I think you have to start there. Um, my my mother taught in elementary and middle middle. Sorry, my mother taught in elementary and middle school, and my father taught high school geography and history. Um, and you know, growing up, we were basically in school all the time because my parents. Um, really pushed us to engage with anything we were interested in, whether that was reading or or any type of learning experience. And I think the best thing they did that if I could encourage other parents to emulate is anytime we showed any interest or aptitude in anything, they would look for the way to give us like a, a real 
a deep experience. They would, they would push us to follow that. So when I was interested in art, they, they got me art lessons. When, even when I was interested in fashion design, which I think was not probably consistent with their values, they, um, they lied to a college of fashion about how old I was so that I could take classes with high school students when I was actually in middle school, um, they were just out there like pushing us and saying, go ahead and try it. See if you're good at this. See if you love this. Um, let's, let's just dive deeper in the way that a really good teacher would do if they notice, um, a spark in a student. And I do like that they were relatively value neutral about it. It's probably why my sister is a game designer. They allowed her to play computer games all day long and didn't you know, judge that as being a waste of time. And now she's designing games. Um, and so I think that, you know, giving your child some autonomy and agency to follow their interests and also look for ways to, to give them opportunities whether it's in a classroom or whether it's in the real world, you know, also, you know, I remember um, my sister and I had these newsletters and magazines that we would actually sell to people. And I don't know, it's kind of ridiculous, but my parents supported it. And it gave us the courage when we wanted to follow our passions um, in college and afterward to say, why couldn't I do this? Why can't I start now before I wait for somebody else to say, okay, you're officially qualified to do this, um, to, to actually just jump in. So note to parents out there, if you have kids and you want your kids to grow up to be extremely successful, encourage, support them, encourage them to, to pursue their passions. Is that, is that it? I think that's it. And, okay. and they, it was, um, it wasn't just encourage us, but you know, they really helped us find the ways to do it. And what I'd love to see where I'm going with this is what I loved about reading in joy of movement. How did you get your interest in exercise and group exercise? What was it that sparked that? Because I love this story of, cause we don't, we can't even access them anymore. Do you, do you probably still have a few of them in a box somewhere? You, I do. You, you probably don't even have anything to play them on. So how'd you get interested in fitness? This I can also give my mother some credit, although she's probably not going to love this story. Not that she's going to be listening to this, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, a woman growing up in the eighties, always thinking about weight and health, like, like most women. And she would go on these diet kicks or these in theory, fitness kicks. And, um, my family was a big garage sale and thrift store family. So my mom started bringing home these used videos that somebody else had abandoned, probably thinking that they were going to be on some fitness kick. Um, she would bring home these VHS, uh, videos, exercise, what I would think of as off brand, by the way, like if I tried to explain to you what some of these exercise videos were, they were not the celebrities that you know and love most of them. They were like random people working out in a very cheap set, um, with very bad electronic music. Um, but she never really did them, but you know, we had a VCR and I did them because I had this idea, you know, I'd seen in the culture, there's the whole Olivia Newton, John, and let's do aerobics thing. And I was like, I could do this. And uh, I started doing the videos in our living room and I got totally hooked. So my mom gets credit for that. And, um, this was when I was probably in third grade, maybe eight years old. I, I got started with this. Um, I remember doing leg lifts in our basement to my first cassette tape, which was Pat Benatar, one of Pat Benatar's first um, albums. And I was like doing the leg lifts, lying in the basement, feeling like a rock star. That is that is awesome. And what I love about that is it goes back to, because I talk about this quite a bit with guests on the show, right, is that a lot of guys in the 80s were motivated by like the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone movies. You know, we wanted, we kind of saw that. And so it's interesting to hear it from your perspective. So how did that grow? And, and, and where I wanted to go with this, when you when you started teaching group fitness, you know, you, did you already have your PhD when you started teaching group fitness? 
No. So I actually, I never even went to, I took dance classes growing up, but I never went to a live like gym class, a fitness class until after I graduated college. And it really rocked my world because I knew I loved doing exercise and I was at home doing my, my yoga videos and my dance fitness videos and lifting light weights. But when I went to a gym, it was the first time I'd taken a class with other people that I, I really experienced, um, what I call collective joy, that amazing feeling of moving in synchrony with other people to loud music and doing it with a, a purpose that you're doing something that's making you strong. You know, I took kickboxing classes and I was taking the dance aerobics classes and uh, it really was a different experience than working out in my little apartment, studio apartment at home. And so when I went to graduate school, I looked for a place where I could take classes and, you know, I found a program at Stanford my first year um, where I could take yoga classes and another program where I could take the aerobics classes and I ended up auditioning that first year because there was no other place on campus where I felt so empowered and um, so sort of witnessed in a positive way. It really was what helped me get through a difficult first year as a graduate student. And I decided that I, I wanted to be a part of that and I wanted to teach. And um, I wasn't even sure if I would finish my PhD. But um, as it turned out, getting involved in, in teaching fitness was part of what actually gave me a community and gave me the courage to finish my degree. And I want to go back to – I want to go there. For, but first I want to take a step back because I overlooked the fact is what, what I really loved about it in your book is you talk about being a kid. And I think so many people, Kelly, this is so important. I'm going to take a couple minutes on this because so many people out there in my experience have the same experience that you did of where they felt discouraged in PE because they weren't an athlete. And so we, we, you know, as a seven, eight, nine-year-old girl, if you weren't a good athlete in the way that we do PE curriculum, you, it would be very easy for you to become dejected and tell yourself a story that you don't deserve to exercise or you shouldn't exercise. Oh yeah. my gosh. I was, Go I was so, I hated PE so much, not only because it was competitive, which I wasn't really good at the whole sports thing. I mean, I was the person where if I was on your team, the boys on my team would be like, cover her. Cause there was no way I was ever going to catch the ball. Um, I even remember in elementary school getting pulled out of PE once for like a remedial PE, me and another kid during the gymnastics segment because we couldn't do forward rolls. And this is seriously traumatic memory. So if you can't do a forward roll on a flat mat, what do you do? You get this giant wedge and you make kids climb up steps and then you have to roll down this giant wedge because it's easier to roll forward down a hill than it is to sort of propel yourself from a flat pace place. Let me tell you like how scary it is if you can't do a forward roll to be on top of something and then be pushed down it. So yes, I had all sorts of traumatic memories from PE because I wasn't fast and I wasn't good at sports and I was sort of scared of things flying at me with speed. Um, and it was totally different than fitness where the skill is about connecting to music, about modeling other people's movement, about moving with purpose, about doing something hard, but just with your own body, like, you know, doing a push up. And I found that I had that, those skills and they really were not developed at all in PE. And I'm so grateful that I found this other form of movement that allowed me to develop a relationship with my body that included things like self-trust and uh, a sense of pleasure about being in my body. 
and uh, about being able to use my body as a vehicle also eventually for connecting with other people um, through something like group fitness. And see, that's what I, I really, I, I'm glad that you're able to articulate that because I can't tell you how many people I've met as adults in group fitness classes that they, they love exercise, but they didn't grow up exercising because they, they, were, they told themselves, they had this self-talk that I'm not an athlete you, because they had a bad PE experience. Could we, would there be a way, if we changed the way we did PE, Kelly, if we did PE curricula based on like group fitness, do you think that would help kids learn how to engage in activity and learn how to, what, you know, to do what your book talks about, to, to learn the joy of movement? Yeah, I mean, in my ideal world, um, first of all, PE would be mandatory, which of course it's not everywhere. Um, and it would be, it would involve choice. It would be an opportunity if you wanted to walk outdoors when the weather allowed for it to just go out and walk and connect with people. I mean, we know that's amazing exercise and also exercise makes it easier to have difficult conversations. Why couldn't you just put kids on a track or in a nearby park and let them walk and talk? And it could include doing mind body practices like yoga so that, you know, kids could regulate their stress or explore what it's like to move by themselves in, in more quiet ways. Um, it should involve weightlifting and training and doing hard things, whatever's the appropriate version of like a CrossFit workout so that kids can feel empowered and challenged and like, like, wow, I can do this amazing thing. It should involve all sorts of options. I remember the only positive experience I had in PE was for some reason we did a square dancing segment and it was the, we, we were graded in PE and I still remember it was the only time in PE I ever got an outstanding instead of a barely passed, thanks for showing up in your uniform grade. And um, I was like, wow, this is amazing. We're square dancing. And it like changed the, the quality of my entire academic day because I didn't have to dread being humiliated um, in some other kind of environment. So, you know, that that's my dream is that kids have the opportunity to move in ways that are meaningful to them and that uh, allow them to develop their strengths. And, and, and that's and see that that we need that's where we need to get to is we need to allow I mean to go back to, to how you and your sister flourish we need to allow kids to find what they want to do and, and encourage that now the last question that I'm going to ask in, the, in this second and we'll go I'm going to be able to dive into the book a little bit is you got your PhD from Stanford and that that's very impressive but how how excited were you when you got your your fitness certification or, or you earned the credential? Because <laughs> I, I say this story because my ex wife, her my my mother in law, ex her her mother tells this wonderful story. And my 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 ex is a kick. She's a stud. I mean, she she has a master's in chemistry, but she was happier to get her 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 group fitness certification than she was her master's degree. So my question to you is: Did you have the same sort of experience? Where here you are, you have these impressive academic credentials, yet you are probably just as thrilled to get your group fitness certification. I was, I, you know, mine was the ACE exam. It was like a, you know, two or three hour exam. I had to go to a hotel to do it. It was pencil and paper. There's math involved. Um, I do remember taking that exam and getting my results and um, being very excited. Um, but you know what I remember even more than that? I remember the first class I taught after my first audition. So when, when I auditioned, I had to teach a little bit of everything, strength, dance, kickboxing, uh, stretch. We called it stretch. It was actually yoga. And, uh, and then I remember the first class I taught that was just mine and it was a dance class. And I remember about two thirds of the way through the class, looking at people moving and smiling. And I even remember the song that was playing. And I, I literally had the thought in my head, this is what I was born to do. 
Like I, I remember like, it's like somebody took a picture of that moment. I remember feeling this is what I was born to do. And that was one of the most joyful moments of my life. And that is, what is it about the group fitness experience? Because you do a very, you do an excellent job of articulating it in the book. And it just, it was, that to me was, was what made it be a page turner. Because I've been teaching this, been teaching for 20 years, you know, since 20, whatever. But you see this and you do a great job of this. So what is it about the group fitness experience that changes our psychology? Well, part of it is the biology of it. So, you know, most people know about a runner's high and they know that exercising can release endorphins, but there's a really interesting neurochemistry and biology that comes from moving in groups. Um, I, I often refer to it as the, the neurobiology of belonging. So when we're physically active and we're doing something that, you know, makes our heart rate go up and we're sweating a little bit, wherever you're doing that, you know, on your own, out in nature, you're going to have certain changes in your brain and body that make you feel better. You'll have a bit of an endorphin rush. You'll have increased levels of dopamine and adrenaline that give you that energy that make you feel more optimistic. Um, And you'll also show an increase in a um, neurotransmitter we don't talk about a lot, endocannabinoids, which is the neurotransmitter that cannabis mimics. And it's responsible for that feeling of like, I could do anything. When you're active and all of a sudden the pain recedes and it feels like you could do it forever and you're just so optimistic about the future, uh, that's driven in part by endocannabinoids. So you've got all this stuff going on when you're exercising. And if you're exercising really hard, you're probably also releasing oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone, um, but it's also a hormone that helps us deal with physical stresses. And so you've got this chemistry going on. And if you happen to be moving in synchrony with other people, or if you are cooperating with other people, you know, doing like a team exercise, or you're doing movement with a shared purpose, all of that is enhanced. And all of these neurotransmitters, the endorphins, the oxytocin, the endocannabinoids are also, um, neurotransmitters of social connection. They all make it easier to trust other people. They all make it easier to feel empathy and connected and to feel like a part of something bigger than yourself. So I think what I love about group fitness is it's harnessing this natural neurobiology of belonging that happens to take place whenever we exercise and get our heart rates up and we're doing something difficult. Like It's already there. And then you're putting yourself in an environment with other people so that you can start to really feel like a community. You can really start to feel like a part of something bigger than yourself. And I experience the, this the most strongly when I'm moving to music because music can enhance all these effects too. So something like a cardio dance class or a cardio kickboxing class with a really killer soundtrack, you know, the, the feeling that I have in those moments is one of a, you know, it's a combination of euphoria and a sense of transcending that, that sense of self that can be so tight and confined where it's all thinking about me or thinking about, you know, what's wrong with me, the self-criticism, the self-focus. It's just an escape from all of that where I really sense myself uh, as a part of something bigger than myself. That's why I love group fitness. And I got to tell you, there's nothing like being the instructor where you are watching 20 or 40 or, or 60 people have a similar experience. It's like, I don't know, it's like people just throwing glitter bombs at you. It's how I feel sometimes in a group fitness class. Like I'm just the recipient of all of this collective joy. Well, what formats do you teach? I didn't ask. I mean, you, you mentioned yoga a little bit, you mentioned dance, but what, what formats do you teach and what are your favorite formats to teach? 
My favorite format um, has always been and probably will always be some kind of dance fitness. Right now, I'm teaching a few programs. Um, I'm teaching Bali X, which is a combination of Bollywood and Bhangra and Indian pop and Western um, pop dance fitness and 305 fitness, which is a really interesting and fun brand based in New York City. That is sort of like um, you're dancing at a nightclub, but you also do a little bit of strength and kind of boot camp training in the middle of it. Um, and, uh, and I also just teach sort of generic cardio dance in my own choreography. But over the years, I've taught everything you can imagine, a bunch of martial arts formats. Um, I focused primarily on yoga for a long time and actually used to lead yoga teacher trainings. Um, I've taught, uh, old school step and strength training. I mean, you know, part of the joy of being a group fitness instructor is when you fall in love with the program, you know, do it for a little bit and then you learn how to teach it and share it with others. Um, but dance is my favorite because of the role that music plays in, in amplifying that endorphin rush and helping people feel connected. Well, and what I love about, and, and, and I need to ask you this question because I don't know if anybody would have, has asked it of this way before, but when you're preparing for your TED, when you're preparing for your TED talk and for listeners, I'm going to have the link below because Kelly just, you, you had one of the top one of the top 20 most popular TED mm. Talks of all time. And, and yeah. Kelly's TED Talk is about stress. And you reshape, and this is why I wanted to have you on, because exercise is positive stress. And, and if you learn how to use it correctly, it makes you stronger. So how stressful was it to prepare to present at TED? You know, I, I know public speaking is supposed to be really stressful. The hardest thing for me, it was my first trip to Europe, and I'm afraid of flying. So for me, the big stress was saying yes to doing it and having to get on an airplane and, uh, and flying across the Atlantic Ocean. Once I got there, you know, getting on a stage and talking to a few thousand people was sort of like, eh, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Um, and I think that it goes to the point that, you know, when we talk about being good at stress, it's not like there are things that that are objectively stressful. Well, there are some things that are objectively stressful, but a lot of times we have this story that being good at stress means you're really good at something like public speaking, or you're really good at high stakes negotiations, or you thrive in a crisis or in conflict. And, you know, I think it's really about being able to do things that matter to you, even when it's difficult, or even when you aren't sure you can handle it. Um, and it's about making choices that are consistent with your values. So for me, what was stressful was deciding, you know, I had something to say that maybe could help people. And TED is an amazing platform. And if I thought that I could share an idea with the world that might actually change people's lives, I ought to be willing to embrace the discomfort and my fear of getting on an airplane. That was the hard part. Well, let's, let's stay there because exercise is discomfort, right? I mean, the yes. whole purpose of exercise is we're creating discomfort. So would you say that people that exercise, there are people that, that exercise regularly, do you think they're training their stress muscle, for lack of a better term, to be able to handle more stress? Because if you, how long had you been teaching group fitness before you were invited to speak at TED? Oh, uh, 13 years. But so, okay, so let's get into this because there are so many different ways to answer that question. And I don't want to neglect any of them because there's the psychological aspect, which I'll talk about first, but there also is the neurobiological fact that when you exercise, it actually changes your brain and your nervous system in ways that make you better at stress. So I think there are two different 
conversations to have. The first is that idea that you're training your stress muscle. And I will tell you how I actually overcame my fear of flying was um, to put myself in a fitness experience that reminded me the most of how I feel when I am on an airplane in turbulence. Hmm. And it was um, indoor cycling classes. When I first took an indoor cycling class, there was no airflow. There was no fans in the studio. It was so hot. I couldn't breathe. Um, it was hard. It was a type of endurance training I wasn't used to. I mean, I wasn't a runner or a cyclist, so I wasn't used to doing the same movement over and over and over again. It really challenged my heart and my lungs in a different way. And, uh, I hated it. I wanted to get off the bike after the first two minutes. I couldn't believe I had to stay there for an hour. And at some point I realized that's how I feel on an airplane. I can't breathe. My heart is pounding when we hit turbulence and I can't believe I can't get out of here. I can't believe I can't escape that kind of panic and and I'm trapped. And I actually started going to cycling classes as a way to practice for getting on an airplane when I was too afraid to fly. And uh, I would, you know, I would tell myself like, like I'm doing this for a purpose. And I ended up making a playlist of music that I would listen to in cycling classes. I call it my turbulence playlist. It's actually on my um, my phone. It's called uh, "I'm So Excited," which is sort of a joke. Um, and whenever we hit turbulence, I put it on, and it's songs that I, you know, would cycle to. These high energy songs, um, including the the fabulous song "Let's Hit Turbulence." Uh, we hit turbulence, which is pretty fun to listen to when you're in turbulence. <laughs> and um, I would like pretend I was on a bike, and my heart is pounding because I'm doing something hard, and it's okay. And it's okay that maybe I'm breathing a little bit um, more because that's how I feel when I'm in a cycling class. And it literally trained me to just embrace the discomfort and go with it. And that's that's something that I think almost any form of movement that's hard um, can train you for, whether it's lifting something heavier than you ever thought you could and what it takes to do that, or whether it's continuing to put one foot in front of the other when you're training for a marathon. This is one way to get better at stress, is you learn that you can continue to do something that feels difficult in the moment, but you have a purpose for it. And so you're going to keep going or you're going to push yourself beyond your comfort zone. That's the psychological side. But, you know, in the book, I write about probably a dozen different ways that physical exercise, just because of how it affects your neurochemistry and how it affects your biology is literally changing the structure of your brain and the function of your brain and body. So that when you face something stressful, you have more courage or your brain understands how to take care of itself. Um, and that's, and that has almost nothing to do with the psychology. It's literally about the fact that you are using the body the way we, we were evolved, the way that we're adapted to use our bodies, which is to do pretty difficult things a lot. And that produces a brain that is ready to engage with life. Well, it's interesting. I was listening to, in doing the preparation for this, I was listening to um, a different podcast. And, and one of the, and, and the speaker, the guest was talking about how we don't have enough stress in our life now. And that stress can actually make us stronger. You know, everything from intermittent fasting, which is stressing the, the you know, stressing the metabolism to, to exercise. Why, you know, you're, you've really helped change the game, but you know, why is positive stress now becoming such kind of a hot button issue? Well, first of all, let me say, I think people have plenty of stress in their lives. Um, (laughs) But what we also have sometimes is too much of a way to seek comfort or to practice avoidance. That's what we probably have too much of is um, 
sort of messaging that encourages us when we start to feel overwhelmed or we start to feel conflict to look for a way to suppress that feeling because we become so convinced that it's toxic and that if you're feeling anxious, you know, it's a sign that life is too difficult and you need to escape. Or if you're feeling overwhelmed, it's a sign that you can't handle it and you should seek an easier situation. I think like that's, I think people are recognizing that maybe we've gone a little too far in that direction in the, you know, from the very good um, desire to help relieve people's suffering. And, you know, like, like almost anything that's a good idea, you can take it too far. So I think the idea that people need good stress is really about recognizing that stress is part of how we learn and grow. And that if you try to over control the amount of stress in your life, it's really hard to control and choose the stress that you experience unless you are getting rid of stress that we would we would typically call good stress. Like you can back away from challenges, you can leave relationships that are maybe meaningful but have some conflict and some complexity in it. You can you can choose to avoid almost what I would think of as the most meaningful forms of stress, but you don't get to choose whether you experience, you know, stigma out in society. You don't get to choose whether you experience a health crisis or a loved one with a health crisis. You don't get to choose whether or not you experience a trauma or a tragedy or a loss. That stuff you don't choose. And so I think part of what the movement is, is trying to encourage people to be willing to chase the stress that's meaningful that often provides the resources, you know, to, it actually strengthens relationships. It, it gives you a sense of self-efficacy so that when you face the stress you can't control, you have, you have the resources and the belief in yourself to endure and get through it and maybe even thrive or change in ways that you value, um, that, that we need to sort of practice stress and we need to practice our coping skills. Like we need to practice asking people for help. Um, so that when the real crisis hits, we have those relationships and we have that comfort. And by the way, I think exercise is great at this too. One of the things I was most um, moved by when I started to explore the ultra endurance world, which is really outside my my own um, my own fitness life. Like I'm not running ultra marathons, and I always thought it was about masochism, like just what's the hardest thing I can do, and now let's do something harder until I'm broken on the side of the road. I mean, I, I don't know. I didn't. I had no idea what it was about psychologically. And then to actually start to witness some of these events and see how much people are taking care of one another. They're like one of the core psychological uh, experiences in doing ultra endurance training is learning how not only to develop your own strength, but to develop the comfort to rely on the help of others. That was really fascinating. And I think you can see that in a lot of the, the fitness activities right now that are really popular is they allow us to work together to deal with difficult things. And that's a real skill that prepares us for life. Well, let's stay there for a second because I think as you're talking about the challenge and as you're talking as you're talking earlier, Kelly, about kind of like, like the cohesiveness of the group fitness experience, I was actually thinking, have you read Stealing Fire by uh, Jamie Wheel and Steve uh, Kotler? I have not. It's about the um, it's about the flow state and specifically the whole altered states economy. And they write pretty in, pretty much in pretty good detail about. And I had Jamie Wheel on as a guest a while back, but they write in really good detail about flow and and about Burning Man and how the music and just the group experience at Burning Man helps create this really unique environment. Doesn't group fitness doesn't a great kicking? And I love the fact that you te- teach Indian dance because the music and the movements in that are just very almost overwhelming. So let's talk a little bit about the flow state and how that group experience, that group movement experience helps create those flow triggers that leads to that positive experience. 
Yeah. So there are a lot of um, different type of flow experiences that you can have during movement, right? There's that classic runner's high when you're out running on your own. There's the flow state people often experience in nature. Um, that really is this kind of transcendent connection to, to life itself and the environment. Um, and there's the flow state you can experience in a mind-body practice where you're so fully immersed in what you're doing and how you're doing it in the present moment. And then, you know, my favorite flow state is that flow state where you feel connected to other people and to music, which is its own unique kind of flow state. You know, sometimes referred to as groove, where music gets in your brain and compels you to move in synchrony with it in a way that often produces a, a, a real high. And then you have that additional flow state that comes from your, your body sensing your connection to other bodies moving. We get, we get our own unique high from that. That's probably connected to, you know, the evolutionary advantage of being able to work together to do difficult physical tasks that if you're working in labor, um, with other people in synchrony, you, you get this high, it's sort of a payoff because you can do things that are, are harder than you could do on your own. And, um, I do experience that in group fitness. It is a, a unique kind of flow state. And I'm always encouraging people to, to find the, the state that feels like the antidote to, to whatever their mind's sort of worst habits are or whatever is, is missing in their life. I mean, you know, there are plenty of people for whom group fitness is not going to be the thing. Um, that, you know, for them, the piece that really brings a sense of, of wholeness is being in nature or being alone. Um, or it, it's a different experience. And just because I love group fitness doesn't mean I think everyone should go out and do their step touches, you know, and, and hamstring curls. Um, but I love that you mentioned that, that some of the music that we use in, in Bali X, like there's something unique about the music and the movements. And that's because a lot of the movement forms are coming from things like Bhangra and folk dancing, which are these cultural traditions where basically people noticed what you spontaneously do when you're feeling joy, the, the movements of celebration and the movements of connection and turned it into formal dances and the music reflects it. And uh, I do think it's one of the reasons why, you know, I teach in communities, some communities with a number of people who grew up in India and it's like their own natural tradition, but even people who'd never heard this music before, they immediately connect to the fact that it seems to be a vehicle for expressing joy and for practicing the social connection of celebration. And, uh, and you know, it's not limited to something like Bollywood music or Bhangra. There are so many different cultures and traditions that do that. Um, and it's about sort of finding the one that speaks to you. And see, that, that kind of sucked to me because I was just in Delhi, Delhi recently. And, and, you know, part of they had a thing, they had a program there one night or had a reception one night for the conference. And they had, you know, Indian dancing there. And it was just, I've seen segments of it before, but I hadn't seen it live. And the music, the, the movements, the athleticism, it was, it was amazing. It was really, and I can see why it's become a, a trend. And then I kind of thought to myself, it's like, that's the perfect format to teach too. When you're explaining what you taught and that you teach at Stanford, I'm like, oh, that's a perfect format to teach at Stanford. <laughs> you know, just because I figured there's probably a pretty big audience there who are already familiar with that, uh, with that type of music. Yes, and I love it. And they, they, you know, translate the lyrics for us and tell us what it means. And there can be a nice sense of uh, cultural appreciation, right, to really try to understand what we're doing and connect to the best part of that cultural tradition. And let's take this a step because a lot of people, what I love about the book title, this joy of movement, is Kelly, you could have written joy of exercise, right? But what is it about that word? Because if I say that word with a large percentage of population, like I was just in Tennessee this weekend to do a workshop. And let's just say that Bristol, Tennessee, 
is not going to be competing with San Diego or other cities for being the mecca of fitness anytime soon. But in, in certain of these communities, certain people, they hear the word exercise exercise already creates a sense of like apprehension and stress. Why do you think that there is, why do you think exercise kind of creates that trigger for so many people? Yeah, I think it's because most people have been told they need to exercise because there's something wrong with their bodies. So we, we associate exercise with self-judgment or social stigma and shaming. You're too big, you're too small, you're too weak, you're too old. And the sense is that exercise is going to remedy that and create a body that is more socially acceptable. So if, if you view that as the purpose of exercise, of course, there's going to be a lot of inner resistance. By the way, that is not how I think about the purpose of exercise, if you can't tell already. Yeah, right. Um, so that's one of the reasons. Another reason is we associate exercise with preventing diseases. And, you know, it's like a a prescription that you have to do, but maybe it's medicine you don't want to take. And it makes you think about your mortality. And, you know, the, the reason I like the word movement is because humans are adapted to move because movement is how we engage with life. We we need to gather food. We need to build, you know, homes and structures so that we can survive as a society. We need to to move to celebrate. We need to to work and play to connect with others. That movement is is how we are as human beings. You know, there's some interesting neuroscientists, including Daniel Walpart, who argues that the entire reason organisms have a brain is to produce movement. That movement literally is the vehicle for being alive. So when I talk about the joy of movement, what that title is really about is that because we need to move to thrive, that our nervous system and our brains have literally evolved to make movement pleasurable, to reward us for moving, whether it's the endorphin rush we get or whether it's by creating that neurobiology of belonging so that when we move together, we feel closer to others and we form deeper relationships, to whether it's the the way that our sense of self is so strongly affected by the movements we do that we can sense ourselves as powerful, as strong, as fast and free, as beautiful and graceful, as sensual, that we literally construct an identity based on the movements that we do every day. That's that's how we're wired. And um, exercise, you know, it refers to a part of that. And I love exercise. Exercise is just moving for no purpose other than to move. I mean, that's the, the kind of definition, the dictionary definition of exercise. But let's take it out of the context of you're moving your body because there's something wrong with you or because you're trying to prevent some outcome you don't want and get back to that idea that that our bodies and brains are are built to reward us for moving. And there's a lot of ways of experiencing all the joys of being human through movement. See, Kelly, this is kind of like, my mind is blowing right now because on one hand, I'm listening to you as a research psychologist because you understand the neurophysiology and you understand how the, you know, the physiology, how the body responds. So I'm I'm totally geeking out on on that side. But on the other hand, I keep thinking, this is a woman who's been a fitness instructor for 20 years. So, you know, you have the lab coat, you know, you know, the lab coat data. But just talk about your practical experience. What are some of those? Because what I love and where I'm going with this is what I love, what I love about the group fitness experience is when you see those members come in and the first one or two times they come to your class, they're very apprehensive, they're shy. But what happens after 
weeks or months, and what what kind of community is created in a group fitness class? And let me hear the instructor. I want to hear instructor Kelly now. And no offense to research Kelly, but I want to hear instructor <laughs> Kelly with your with your knowledge that you have about physiology. Just what what kind of magic? Just from an instructor standpoint, what kind of magic happens in a studio? Yeah, I think, you know, there are two main things I've seen. And of course, I've experienced them myself through movement. But one is kind of what you were hinting at, this idea that your sense of yourself changes as you gain more experience with a movement form and you are witnessed by other people, including an instructor who cares about you and wants the best for you. So, you know, let's say it's a strength training program. You show up and you do things that are harder than you than you've ever done before. And you have a, an instructor who's seeing you and seeing you as a strong person doing difficult things. And it starts to change how you feel about yourself. And, and you know, every movement form has its own positive qualities like that. I had a woman um, on Friday this week after class come up and say, I always feel so empowered after, after this class. You know, I come in, um, she is struggling with a, a chronic illness and she afterwards she says i feel so empowered afterward and i think that it's part of that is coming into a community and moving and the way that when we move with other people it it actually allows us to use our bodies more fully it allows us to tap into our strengths more deeply there's there, I, well, I shouldn't talk about the research right i'm not talking about research kelly but there is plenty of research that you actually can push yourself more or experience more depth of movement when you are with other people and particularly other people who support you so i see that aspect of it people feel different about themselves their sense of identity changes but as you said there's also these communities of support that form and i would say that when i first started teaching i didn't understand this and so i wasn't trying to create it. You know, I didn't realize how important the before class time is, how important the water breaks can be for people catching up with one another, how important it is to not stack classes so tightly back to back that people are, are pushed out of the room and sort of out the door to create these spaces where, where people are, are having this experience of moving and they're doing it with other people and they're able to connect. And there's one community that I've been teaching at for a while where most of the people in it are um, over the age of 60. And in the last year, we've had a number of losses, um, a couple of women who've lost their husband. We've had a number of deaths of parents um, and caregiving challenges and, and really big life transitions. And to watch how these women support one another, um, make sure that they come to class so that they're not alone. Um, the, you know, the, there's a, the ability to talk about it, but then also to stop talking about it and just be together and move and have a, an opportunity to experience some joy as a, a respite from what else is happening in life. Um, I've been so, so heartened to see that happen. And again, I do think there's something about moving together that makes it more likely that people will, you lower your guard a little bit and, um, and you develop these kind of social connections that even if they're not you know, like deep, the, the closest friend you've ever had in your life, you care about one another. It's a, it's a community of interdependence mm. where it's okay to sort of be seen as a human being and know that you'll be held by a community, even if it's just for an hour that cares about your well being. Um, and I've seen that flourish in a number of different movement forms. Um, yoga also can be really powerful for that. What would, what would, what would you want group fitness instructor? How does group fitness instructor Kelly influence researcher Kelly? 
I think of it as being the other way around. So, you know, you asked originally, why did I go into psychology and want to do research? Um, my interest is how do I, how can I be more effective? So my goal is that, you know, the classes I teach create belonging and hope, um, and connection and empowerment. So the whole purpose of research is not to be good at research, it's that I can be better at doing the actual work. And so I really think it's mostly one direction on that way. I want to know about the neurobiology because I want to know that when your heart rate goes faster, that when your heart beats more, it actually leads to more of the endorphins and the endocannabinoids, let's say, or the oxytocin that's going to help people bond. And so I'm going to include in my group fitness classes, some sprints where people are going to work harder. And maybe they didn't know they wanted to work that hard, but I know that three minute section where they're working harder than they usually would is going to change their physiology in a way that when we then take a break and I say, go high five someone else and tell them how great they did. It's, it's deepening that connection even more than if we didn't do that extra push. Or when I think about the songs that I'm choosing, you know, I'm interested in the research on the psychology of music because I want to choose songs that have lyrics that are going to reach in, into somebody and make them feel like the best version of themselves when they're, when they're moving. So I don't know. Group Fitness Kelly does not influence researcher Kelly, um, except to maybe want to ask questions that make me more effective at creating life-changing experiences. And then finally, as we're wrapping up here, how powerful is music, Kelly? I mean, you, you've referred mm. to it a number of times, but when I when I choose music now for, for classes I teach, and I'm doing more conditioning classes, and I do teach cycle every now and then, what, what I really look to is I'm in my late 40s. I look for music in the nine, like remixes of 90s and 2000s <laughs> music because, and even some 80s because I'm trying to create an environment where I want it to be retro. I want people to get lost in the music and I purposely sometimes say, we'll tell somebody or we'll tell the group that this song came out in 1996. So right now I want you using your 1996 legs. You know, I try to put them in that, you know, I want them to kind of, I want everybody to be transported back to a time they felt strong, powerful. You know, how does music create that, you know, how does music influence not only movement, because movement, we're creating a whole neurochemistry dump in our body, but, you know, how does music change that as well? Yeah, well, so one of my favorite interviews that I did for the book was with Costas Karagiorgis, who is a, a sports psychologist who specializes in helping athletes choose music to pump them up and train to, and also helps create some of the workout playlists with a lot of the, the streaming services that you might know. And uh, he totally schooled me on the psychology of music as it relates to movement. And there's so many different ways that, that music can affect people's experience during movement. One is just the, the nature of music itself. You know, there's a particular tempo between 120 and 140 beats per minute that seems to energize people and make them want to move and allow them to work harder and to enjoy it more. So, so sometimes it's as simple as tempo. And their qualities, you know, a relatively higher pitch, um, uh, a certain type of... Um, of rhythm and, and quality that just encourages people to move. And a lot, if you look at streaming playlists, you'll see a lot of songs like that. A lot of pop music um, is like that. But then there's also the meaning. And you mentioned memories um, that, that music gets into our brains, particularly music that we enjoyed when we were teenagers seems to have a very powerful effect on our sense of self. And sometimes the music will, will pull out memories and, and qualities of who you were at a different time that can create a really emotional experience. Um, there's also lyrics, you know, the, the lyrics that are about determination or perseverance or being beautiful or being strong, that lyrics can have a, a very big impact on how you feel. And what's so fascinating is when you're moving your body in ways that are 
consistent with the lyrics you're hearing, it's like the most powerful medicine for sensing yourself as having those qualities of, of being someone who is determined or being someone who is beautiful, who is strong. But I have to say, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on using music. That's mostly about nostalgia, especially because I, you know, I teach people from, uh, you know, late teens to late eighties, maybe, um, in terms of their age. And there is something very powerful about continuing to expand your repertoire of the music that moves you. It's one of the greatest joys in life to stay current with popular music. And uh, right now, my senior ladies are loving Lizzo. And Lizzo <laughs> is bringing something out of them that is of this moment. And it's a particular way of being alive. I think that um, too soon people give up on pop music um, or they, they have their one genre. And I think that one of the greatest psychological strengths I have is I love everything and I will dance to country and hip hop and rock and roll and electronic dance music, you name it. There's some part of me that connects to why that music is popular and powerful. And uh, I think that's a strength worth developing because it, it gives you so many more opportunities to experience joy and to connect with others. Well, no, that's a fair point, and, and yeah, I may be mis- misstated. I don't. The, the entire playlist is not nostalgic, but I do drop. You know, I'll drop two or three songs in there, just like, and I'll go on to the top hits, and because I don't stay that current on the top hits, surprise, surprise. But I will look up and see what the most popular is on on the downloading service I use, and I will drop in a couple of those songs. So, I, fair point, and I love the pushback. I always love when when guests push back a little bit because it, that's that right. That's how we learn, right? Is you're like, hey, think about it a little bit differently. Now, what was your the final? Final question here as we wrap up. What was your favorite exercise tape growing up? When you when you were coming back in, if you had a bad day at school, if you just wanted to get, you know, young Kelly wants to have a great workout, what was your go-to workout video? Uh, the original Jazzercise. And it is has everything I love about exercise. And you can actually see it on YouTube now um, or on Facebook. It's funny. People pass it around. It's almost like a joke. Like, ha-ha, can you believe it? But you know what? Um Jazzercise encouraged you to sing along. It was using music of the day. It was movements that were intended to make you feel like a dancer. And there is, for me, that's always what I want to come back to at the end of the day is, is moving and singing along, lip syncing for my life um, and feeling like I'm expressing whatever is good in a song, expressing it through my body and doing it with other people and synchronizing with other people. Um, that's still my favorite joy. And, uh, there's no joke about that, you know, sort of every, every group fitness program that, that really speaks to people is doing it from a place of being of the moment. And I think it's wonderful to go back and look at all these old exercise videos that were so popular, sweating to the oldies, you know, whatever they are. And like, they were really speaking to something real in that moment. And the the best programs now are doing the same thing. And I'm sure we'll mock them in 20 years. Um, but I am willing to fully embrace them wholehearted enthusiasm. No, I, I think that's awesome. But you know, you have to understand when, when I'm with instructors at various conferences, you know, sometimes that conversation comes up and we talk about how influential, influential those tapes were. And we're at, you know, I'm going to ground this conversation offline, but we're at this point now where for years, Kelly, for years, the, the, the conference presenters and the fitness instructors that taught other trainers were the ones producing the videotapes and the, and the workout tapes. And now we've shifted to now the leading people in the industry are all Instagram personalities, and yet they don't do what myself and others do, going out and educating other trainers. So we're at this interesting little dichotomy right now of 
uh, just in terms of the education programming. But that's a, that's a whole different conversation. But I just think that's an interesting note that for years, the leading influential people in, the, in fitness were the people with the videotapes. And now that's completely changed. Now, assuming that most people can't enroll in Stanford and take your classes, where can they learn more information about, about Joy of Movement or how can they get more information about the type of work you're doing? Well, the book will be everywhere, so pick up the joy of movement. Uh, and then I'm online, my name, kellymcgonigal.com, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Um, and I have playlists on Spotify that include all the playlists for my classes. So even if you can't dance with me in person, you can put on the playlist and um, dance around your living room with me in spirit. Awesome. Well, Kelly, thank you. I, I, again, I, I am so stoked. When I got that email and, and you said you're a listener, I, I literally was like floating five feet off the ground. So uh, it is such a fun conversation. And I hope to have you back on because honestly, I could continue this for a long time, but I just want to be respectful of people's time. And, and most importantly, I'm going to be respectful of your time. So really, I really appreciate this. And I, I certainly appreciate the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, and thank you for all the conversations that you're facilitating and hopefully encouraging people to move in ways that, that they find meaningful and joyful. Okay, I was I was fanboying out there, and again, I, I first introduced I was first introduced to Kelly when I saw her TED talk on stress, and stress is good for us, right? We tend to think of stress as bad, but but a certain amount of stress is good because it conditions us to be stronger. And on that note, if you want to learn how to become stronger and remain injury free, and learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life, not only do I want you to pick up a copy of Joy of Movement. But also pick up a copy of Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. That's my book that will help you learn how to use some simple fitness tools, medicine balls, stability ball dumbbells, to get different results. You know, you learn, I teach you how to use one piece of equipment to do metabolic conditioning, to do core training, to do mobility training. You don't need to use a million pieces of equipment. You don't need to fill the gym up or steal all the equipment in the gym. Just learning how to use one piece of equipment can get you a great workout. So Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. There's going to be a link down below in the show notes. And folks, if you want to support the podcast, please buy, buy the podcast or buy the book through the publisher. There are other bookselling sites on the internet. I think we all know what I'm referring to. Uh, but they really, uh, they don't get, you know, authors get paid based on commission, or at least this author gets paid based on commission, how much you pay for the book. So if you buy the book on discount, um, you're getting a great deal. You're going to get a great book and you're going to get a lot of knowledge and save a couple bucks. But if you're a fan of the podcast, all they ask is that you pick it up from the publisher because that, that helps me out and helps me keep doing this. So back to, to the wrap up from Kelly. This is really, you know, I, I love the conversation. We got into the conversation, the flow state, because that's what we do when we exercise. You know, we want to get in that space where we lose track of time. We lose track of other things going on. And I think that's one of the biggest benefits about finding exercise that you enjoy is you get out of yourself. You're not worried about work. You're not worried about home. You're not worried about the other, you know, paying the bills, returning this phone call, getting that email out. If you're doing the right exercise, if you're doing the exercise that you love, if you're finding joy in the way you move, you get lost in it. You get in that flow state. You become one with what you're doing and, and everything else just kind of fades away. Any good group fitness professional can get you there. Any good exercise professional should understand that there are specific ways to influence what you can do. You know, I wrote an article, this is a huge area of interest for me. I've written an article and a couple of blogs on the topic and I'm having a link down below in the show notes to a blog on how to initiate flow triggers through exercise. You know, what can you do in your workouts to create a state of flow? You know, there, there are, there are a lot of things that you can do there, you know, and I'll, you know, read that blog and you'll get some specific inf information. This was a really fun conversation. And, 
And Dr. McGonigal, I appreciate your time. Like I said, I, I released part of this conversation earlier where we were talking just about the psychological benefits group fitness. But I wanted to go, I wanted to release this again because we talked specifically about the book and we go into detail on some of the research that she did in order to write the joy of movement. If you want to get more information about how you can exercise, remain injury free, or want to learn how to do exercises that can bring you joy, check out the All About Fitness podcast. That's All About Fitness podcast YouTube channel. I'm now putting information up on YouTube, I'm trying to get information up there every week. That's on YouTube. Go to All About Fitness podcast. I have the channel up there. Or you can reach me, um, uh, you can you follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at Pete McCall underscore fitness, at Pete McCall underscore fitness on Instagram. More than happy, you, know, you can come in, check it out, see the t- different types of workouts that can enhance your quality of life. And also check out my blog, Pete McCall Fitness. I'm going to have a link below to that blog on flow and flow triggers below in the show notes. Hopefully you got a lot out of listening to this. I had a lot of fun in this conversation it really was one of those that really just, man, I walk away walking on air, you know, being able to talk with smart people doing really wonderful things. As always, it's been wonderful having you stop by, and I look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness. Fitness.